Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule, four things they cherish and would wish to preserve or have again, and one that they loathe and would like to see the back of, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to be bothered about again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian Simon Evans, who has made numerous appearances on television in such shows as Mock the Week, 8 Out of 10 Cats, Live at the Apollo and even Question Time. He's a favourite on the comedy circuit all over the world and has presented five series of his own BBC Radio 4 show, Simon Evans Goes to Market, a look at the economics behind everything from alcohol to birth, death and marriage. As a writer, he's a long-term contributor to Lean Max BBC sitcom Not Going Out, which he's also appeared in. He won Celebrity Mastermind, specialising in the subject Ernest Shackleton, and is the voice of the fox in the television adverts for the beer Old Speckled Hen. I wonder if he gets free samples. Anyway, here is the extremely erudite Simon Evans and the things he wants to put in a time capsule. Just letting my wife know that we're recording because I can hear her stomping about a bit upstairs. <laughs> I mean, I was just worried that there wouldn't be any that I would feel, you know, that I could give any sort of emotional truth to. But of course, as soon as you start prodding and poking about, they, they come flooding out, don't they? And in they fact, do. What did, I've, I've selected, I think it was like four, four that I would like to see again or have on tap, as it were, and then one that I would like to see buried without remission. Indeed. And of course, that's the hardest one in a way because you think... 
a lot of negative experiences can be learning experiences, can't they? And you just think, if I weren't able to draw on that to to remind me of the dangers of of a certain course of action or whatever, that I might get into deeper water next time. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we can we can explore that. As to whether you'd make the same mistake again, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Yeah. Having got rid of it, you would immediately go out and yes. fall into the same trap. Yeah. Wow. So would you like me to kick off with one? Or? Yes, please. So what's the first item you'd like to put in? I've thought since I am um, a stand-up comedian and uh, and sometimes, you know, during lockdown, I need to remind myself of that fact, of course, you know, which <laughs> I think a lot of us actually, we, we exchanged on, you know, on in, in back channels, the degree to which our, our own sense of our own existence had been challenged by yes. you know, the withdrawal <laughs> of the opportunity. What am I then? I mean, in what other sense do I work? So I thought I would pick out, um, you know, a highlight, Geek, uh, I suppose a moment, and I think this is probably something that any in, in any people would recognise. It's not so much like the highlight of of the of an entire career, which I've been doing it for sort of twenty four years now. It's not mm. necessarily you know live at the Apollo or whatever. It's probably the moment when you first realise you can do it. That moment where you kind of go, oh, do you know what? I think I might actually be all right at this. You know, <laughs> and that's. That's such an exciting moment in anything that you're trying to master. I mean, I see it with my kids now. Edward, my son, who's 13, uh, is um, just getting into skateboarding. And previously he was into bouldering, which is indoor rock climbing with artificial sort of holes screwed into the wall. Mm -hmm. That's become compromised by the virus, whereas skate parks seem to be still open. And that moment, again, when you stand at the top of a half pipe and you drop in, you know, and you overcome the fear that you are just going to plummet to your death. You know, and it doesn't look very much from from side on holding the camera up from you know 20 yards away just get on with it you know but I know what it's like (laughs) to stand there and it's the same when you stand behind the stage door you know for the first time and you think I've got to go out there and the first time I performed stand-up was a a little pub called the Full Martin Firkin there were a a chain of Firkin pubs back in the, the 90s in London and this was one just off Kingsway in Hoban and um and it took a certain amount of nerve to go out on that stage but that was in front of about a dozen people, and I think mm. about half of them were there with specific other comedians. You know, they'd come along to offer moral support. I didn't have any moral support specifically for me, but these people were generally supportive of of starting, you know, of comedians, put getting their mm. act in order, and they were patient and they were well disposed towards that, the, you know, the nature of the event. So there was a limit to how badly wrong it could go. But I doubt if they wanted you to be better than their friend. No, that's true. No, that is true. But then again, I'm not sure I was because I was on first, so that was OK. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, funnily enough, there was it was quite a specific demographic, and I was I sort of hesitate to, to mention the fact that I noticed it, but I did notice it. There was a lesbian comedian on called Kat, I think Kat Nielsen, I think her name was, and she was a Swedish lesbian who spoke mainly about her love of maths, and I remember that and she had with her quite a large number of other lesbians and uh, and I had to you know I wasn't sure how that would go for me I wasn't sure if they would be like PC you know or, or sort of monitoring my my set for any sort of casual sexism or whatever which I'm sure <laughs> I was more than capable of, of playing to you know and quite early in your career you had that sort of curmudgeonly character yes. didn't you that's yeah, so, so that, yeah. that whole thing well, of, you very know... early I'm not sure I did of course this is the thing ah. early on in your career you you try out different angles and different personae, I suppose, and mm. you even try out different, you know, dress codes, you know, to see what, what works. And early on, funnily enough, 
I remember I was trying to portray myself as almost like a kind of James Dean rebel type character. I wore <laughs> right. black jeans and a black leather jacket. I, I mean, it just what didn't wash at all. Certain aspects, you know, I was I was really floundering about. Trying to, I, I settled eventually. I remember going to a uh, there was a warehouse sale of um, samples and you know designer clothes that were at discount prices that had been maybe used on catwalks or whatever. And I thought mm. this would be a good place to get a stage stage wear, you know, something yeah. a little bit more ostentatious. Mm. And I think I was probably right because David Baddiel and Angus Deep were both there as well. I remember seeing them walking around and fingering <laughs> garments. And um, and I bought myself a double-breasted, quite dark velvet, like a crushed shot velvet um, Edwardian-style jacket. Uh, it was it was double-breasted quite near the throat, you know, so crossed over quite high up, almost oh, like yeah, somebody had a pole dark or whatever. And uh, <laughs> it was it was wonderful. I mean, I've still never had anything better or seen anything like it. It was um, uh, Catherine Hamnet, I think, had designed it. But anyway, it was uh, it was wonderful, and I bought that, mm. and and that I settled into that. So that was a strong enough item of clothing to give me a lead. You know, once I put that on, I knew who I was, which yes. was at that point, yes. A little bit curmudgeonly, but sort of supercilious and slightly reptilian as well, and utterly callous, really quite indifferent to other people's suffering and just sort of mildly bemused by the foolish choices other people make and the consequent, uh, you know, um, (laughs) natural justice to which they expose themselves. It's certainly Uh, what attracted me to you straight away. (laughs) I went, that's my sort of man. Yes, it it was great while it lasted, and I had that persona for about 10 years, and then kids came along, of course, and that changed you. But it's quite... It's quite good to be have your world shaken up every so often as a stand-up because otherwise you are just retreading the same path mm. and and reword. You know you can find new subject matter, but at the end of the day, if your attitude to things is remains the same, if everything is stupid, if everything is modern folly or whatever, then you, you yes. eventually everyone gets the angle, you know, and they understand. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, kids come along and chop you off at the knees, and you become. Um, a much more beleaguered sort of character, you know, much less able to um, express this kind of cold indifference to the troubles of the world, you know. <laughs> so, yes, those first few years. And, and Kat Nielsen's uh, friends were lovely towards me and very supportive. And I, I th- honestly think if they had been cold or indifferent or, or let alone sort of booed, that might have been the end of it. I mean, I think if you have if you have a bad experience the first time, I can't imagine any... I'm not sure I would have gone back. I've You know, I've, no. I've, I've tried out various things over the years or certainly had done then. I was 31 years of age, hadn't really found a career, you know, that I'd set, and I hadn't, I had not demonstrated very much stamina or endurance in the teeth of, of opposition, you know. Mm. I, I was kind of, I gave up quite easily, you know, I have to be honest about that, you know. So it was lucky that this one actually worked. So it might be that moment in the full Marlon Firkin, but I think really the moment when it crowned was um, my first open spot at the Comedy Store, which is a pretty classic, you know, uh, trial by fire. And uh, that was in August, having done my very first spot in May. So it was pretty soon. I was still only about three months in, you know, and it was quite unusual to get um, a slot that early. But because it was August, the the Edinburgh Festival was on, the Edinburgh Fringe, and so the store was working from a slightly shallower pool in that month of the year than than they normally have available. So they uh, they let me have a go. And I remember very clearly, it was a, a compare, a lovely man by the name of Tim Clark, who I uh, still on the circuit, I think, Tim, uh, absolute gentleman, very, very smooth. He had almost a sort of George Sanders kind of urbane manner of, of sort of confidence that, and that would suffuse the entire audience. They'd be quite 
relaxed and confident that anyone he was about to introduce would inevitably be worth their attention, you know. <laughs> so I went out there and I did that five-minute set. And and the first time you play a big audience like that, I mean, I played maybe uh, a 100-seater, it might have even been more, but they were sort of spread out quite often, you know, the back room of a pub, people mm. with um, chairs and tables, a little bit of dispersion of the audience are sort of, uh, yes. they are diluted in a larger space. In the comedy store, it is arranged purely for the, the sort of impact. It's They're arranged almost like a square on a battlefield. You know, they are just serried ranks of laughing infantry. You know? <laughs> and when they laugh at you, it just hits your chest. You know, it's, it's like standing up in the ocean and a big wave catching you unexpectedly. It's yeah. tremendously physical excitement and um and the first time i experienced that yeah that is a moment that i would and i can still sort of summon it up i can almost summon up that sense of it at, at will which is wonderful you know it's a lovely thing to reflect on yeah and to know that you could get that and even though you know i've now toured you know half a dozen shows where people have just come to see me mm. which is lovely and of course and economically it makes more sense but also mm. it's very nice to know that you're addressing people who know what they're coming for and you can overcome certain uh, you know, the need for niceties or introductions or whatever. <laughs> but there's still nothing quite like winning over, a, a, you know, a neutral crowd in a big comedy yes. club, that moment where they don't know who you are, they haven't come to see you. Three months in, they wouldn't have the faintest idea. No idea who I was or any, any of my proposition, exactly. And so you go from zero to 60 like, and you and you just absolutely floor it. You've got five minutes to win, you know, and wow. it's just terribly exciting. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Yeah, I've it, never done it. I've never done it. I've never had the courage to do it. Well, it's. I mean, I think the thing is, the courage is is. I, honestly, I mean, I think a lot of other people feel the same way about acting or, or you know, whatever else it is. But there are some things, aren't there, where you do them and it just feels right, mm. you know. And, and courage isn't really. If I had received a hostile reaction, I suppose it would have felt quite different. But I would have been surprised. I have to be honest, because I felt, yeah, I I know what I'm doing here. Yes, you know, it just felt right at that point and very quickly. I've had that feeling in a play, you know, mm. to come on and within within minutes of the play starting to almost get around, you know, and you think yeah, to yourself, yeah. well, this is fabulous, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Because you don't expect it. You expect a, a play to build and the big laughs to come towards the end. But to, to get that right at the front, you think, so, wow, this is going to be a great night. Yeah. I wonder whether it's a similar thing as well with it, good casting would be the important thing with the play as well as obviously it must be well written. And then, of course, you must be able to act. But when the three things come together, so that no, not only is the writing good and the acting good, but you feel it's in sync, you know, there's, mm. there's, it's a good fit. And I think a stand-up needs that as well. You can write great jokes, but if the audience don't quite feel like they're really your jokes, if they feel that, that you're, you're playing the wrong role, you know, and that's what you have to listen to them for early on and, until you find it, and then you go, yes, this is... This is all coming from the same place. This character is coherent. It, it, mm. It's it's real. It's three dimensional. It breathes. You know, it can stand up yes. on its own, and and that's when everything is suddenly lands that much more deeply, and the punches, you know, really connect. Yes, and that creating that character. Some stand up comedians, when they walk on the stage and they do their character, you go, well, this is clearly a fabrication. This is mm. this can't be them because it's so sort of extreme. Yeah. But it's always the case, isn't it, that actually you are manipulating your own personality. Yeah. I mean, some people have said, you know, a persona is something that is just yourself, but magnified, just exaggerated. But I think there are some people whose who's onstage persona is really quite different from who they really are. And of course, there are some people who create a persona early on in a career. They themselves then grow in real life, but the persona doesn't come with them. You know, there is that, yes. there's that danger. And I think that is 
a shame, but you know you can understand why if it's working, you you know one hesitates to to abandon it. Mm. And then there are other people who, um, I mean, there are, I won't name names, but there are some comedians who rely heavily on improvisation and spontaneity to create their effect, but as a result have to create an extraordinarily over-the-top persona in order to trigger the sort of events in the audience that, you know, so they overreact to really quite banal audience observations, you know. <laughs> you know, who are you here with? Is this your wife? No, it's my sister. It's your sister! Oh, my God, he's come out with this. <laughs> do you know what I mean? As if that's kind of yeah. the word. And... and there is a part of me that I, I find that a little bit cringe, but of course it's it's necessary to generate the amount of sort of explosive energy that you can that creates the chaos that they can then work with, you know. Yes. And and you won't always get that, you know. But of course, once they do start to get that, then there is the potential that they will actually find something extraordinary about the reason why a man is there with his sister, you know. So yes. you know, it, it it all works. It's all valid. Or in fact, bursting on the stage. I mean, I've worked with Lee Evans, and and actually in real life. He's a very quiet, shy, yes. pleasant, you know, he's a lovely he's man. He's a very good example of, of that, yeah. And then suddenly he walks on stage and, and just, it's extraordinary to see him do it. I believe he actually was a boxer and um, I think may have continued to train as a boxer. I mean, I don't know how serious a boxer, but I think he regarded himself as quite seriously committed to it as a sort of fitness regime at any rate. And I always mm. thought there was a lot of that to his his performance, you know. It was like and you, the way that a boxer is actually quite often are quite quiet and internal and sort of brooding people. Not that, you know, he broods exactly, but, yeah, keeps no. himself to himself until he's out in, under the lights and then, bang, out it comes, yeah. Yes, and he's on his toes. Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 That's not my style. <laughs> Could never do that. <laughs> Exhausting. Try stay moderately fit, but no. Who needs to minutes. sweat that much? No, no. <laughs> Well, Simon, that's a lovely thing to put into a time capsule. I know you can actually go back and experience it any time in your head, but uh, yeah. here, we'll put you in front of that crowd. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. August so... 1996, it was. Fantastic. Right, OK, that's number one. So what's what's your second item? Second item, these are in no particular order, but um, my second item would be the feeling of physical fitness and levity and potential um, which I think is actually the root of almost all happiness, really. And almost anything that, you know, it does not involve that is often sublimating that or is kind of substituting it possibly. That uh, um, I think there's, there's, there's nowhere that I ever feel quite so fit and sort of capable and bursting with life as I do in the Lake District and uh, in particular running down the hills at the end of the day when I know I've done all the hard work, I've done all the climbing <laughs> of the day, uh, my boots have got as wet as they're going to get and uh, and there's a pub at the bottom with a pint of Jennings waiting for me. Mm. And I go up there every year, have done for about 30 odd years with a bunch of mates. Um, we've remained a very stable unit, a couple have come and gone, but by and large, we've we, you know five or six of us have really really clung to it as a sort of rock, you know, as uh, as the seas and, and winds of, of life buffet us. And uh, we get up there, usually in, in autumn, uh, get a good seven or eight hour walk in. And um, the others, they like to sort of stump down quite slowly and uh, take their time and, and watch their step. But I discovered a few years ago that there's an extraordinary euphoria to be had in just really allowing gravity to do most of the work on the way down and just like as, as as nimbly as you possibly can, fending yourself away from the bigger and more jagged obstacles, <laughs> like wow. hopping and skipping. 
And so far, touch wood, I have yet to hurt myself. Across rough ground? Well, down paths, you know, rocky mm. paths, yeah. But there's the sort of paths that are, that are common in the lakes. We don't go off, off path anyway. And, of course, it's ecologically um, important that you, you stick mm. to the path as well rather than wearing everything out. But, um, yeah, sometimes they're sort of slightly marshy or boggy. Sometimes they're, they're, they're fully rocky. Sometimes there's a bit of scree. And, of course, you know, you do go at different speeds. But it's extremely exciting. That The key is, I think, that you are just judging where to put your foot just in time. You know, there's that constant sort of sense. I imagine skiers get, get the same thrill. I've never managed to master skiing. I haven't skied often enough, I think, to sort of build up that, that skill, and it might be a bit <laughs> too late now. But that same sense that you are just making decisions, to, you know, as, as everything flashes past you, you have to live in the moment. You have no <laughs> alternative, because if you if you start dreaming about something else, you'll come a cropper, you know. <laughs> and so you're hurtling down the hill, and you know when you get to the bottom, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a point for you. But but it's a it's a nice long journey. It's a good half an hour or so, you know, even, even uh, at speed, running from the top of a hill down to where it starts to shallow out and it's just really an absolutely ecstatic feeling so i mean i wouldn't have a particular example of it but um wasdale head is uh is there's a good pub there that's it i'll pick that one out and that also of course is also the home of josh naylor who is probably the most legendary of the actual fell runners a shepherd who lives up there and is also has sort of extraordinary innumerable records to his name like uh, climbing 60 peaks in 60 hours at the age of 60 and things like this. He's he extraordinarily, he's a unique sort of presence. So he's a bit of a sort of mascot almost. I think of him <laughs> as a sort of totem, you know. I love walking, Simon, but I really the idea of running back down the hill at the end of the day. Well, I think, I, I do think the world is divided into people who naturally get it or don't. I think that mm. there's a lot of truth to that. And actually, my friends that I walk with up there are very sceptical about fell runners, where occasionally one goes past us and then, you know, five minutes later you see the flash of his orange shirt, you know, three miles away on the next yeah. peak. What have you got? My God. I, I, am, I would struggle to run up. But it's quite a different thing, the running down thing. Of course, mm. I mean, the sad thing about it is, of course, you might say that it, it sort of you want to take time to relish those last dying embers of the day, you know, mm. and instead mm. you're, you're rushing through it, to which I would say, well, you just stay up a bit longer. <laughs> 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 but that's not always possible. But, yes, I mean, there is a certain amount of scorn and scepticism. I've encountered that from the sort of walking community, and there are other people who go up there on mountain bikes now as well, you know, mountain bike all the way to Sarfield Pike and, and come down yeah. over really rough ground. I mean... I wouldn't fancy that at all. No. You know, there's always somebody doing something that you look at and go, well, that's just madness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's always somebody looking at you and thinking that, and there's always, you know, there are degrees. Well, I'm definitely going to put it in there because I'm sure that your friends are all delighted <laughs> not to lose your company, but they know who's yeah. going to get the first round in. Yes, absolutely. It's always That's you. Right. Mind you, I've usually had a pint by the time they get down. <laughs> <and> they get... <laughs> All right, so you'll be ready for another. I've met a couple of actual fell runners um, in, uh, over the years. There's a guy called Ben Mounsey, who's a lovely chap, and I actually went for a run with him um, on, is it called Saddleworth Moor, the one near, yeah. near Halifax? Yeah, mm. um, which is where he's based. And... Um, He's one of these guys who will, like, sleep in his car so that he's ready for the 3 a.m. start the next day, you know, on the big championships and stuff. So I've seen how committed and how fit and how lean, you know. I mean, if you're serious about fell running, you develop the physique that suits it, which is to say, you know, not an ounce of body fat on you, you know, calves like oak. Yes. And uh, and everything sort of tapers off above the waist. <laughs> 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 
but it's it's a wonderful and it's a huge tradition and and it's got some real characters in it. There was a great book called um, Feet in the Clouds. Uh, I can't remember the the author's name, but it's easily found. Uh, Feet in the Clouds, which was a sort of history of fell running and um, and this chap's attempt to uh, to take on a thing called the Bob Graham Round, which is a twenty four hour challenge, which is beyond mm. most people. And he divided up the fell running community into um, uphillers and downhillers, it seems. In most races, there are some who get up surprisingly quick and there are others who basically just throw themselves off the top, you know, the catch up, you know, just like plummet like a stone. So uh, that's, uh, that would brilliant. be the camp I'd be in. I suspect that my gun, I have two grandchildren, uh, my daughter's children, and they both love to run. They run my granddaughter, who's only just turned six, but she never goes anywhere without running. Yeah. She runs all the time. And if, in fact, you're walking beside her, she trots. She sort of treads yes. water, as it were, yes, yes. next to you. She never, ever walks. Some people are born with that sort of metabolism and that tick over rate. I think they're generally quite healthy, actually, as long as they're mm. allowed to to do that. You know, they tend to keep the weight off and they, they tend to sort of uh, just be alert, which is, I think, probably a pretty good thing, generally yes. speaking. <laughs> but they both go to a school where they do a, a daily run. I think that may be unusual. but they, I think it probably is, yes. But they run twice round the field, about a kilometre. Yeah. And they always win, both of them. Oh, that's great. It is great. I'm very proud yeah. of them doing I think it it's me. a core skill, running. And, and there's nothing that looks better than a human being running with grace and ease. We live in mm. Hove, and the seafront here has a lot of runners, including sometimes like the sixth form from some of the schools. And they just look great. You know, humans look right when they're running. It's it's a natural skill. But there's nothing that looks worse than somebody who's sort of plodding, you know, who's yes. sort of running with yes. resentment in every step. You know, <laughs> looks as if they'd rather be almost anywhere else, you know. I think if you can do it with enthusiasm and get your sort of cadence and gait right and everything, it's, yeah. just, it's just magnificent. It's like we are running animals. That's how we used to hunt down you know, gazelles and antelopes and so on. We we were not fearsome wrestlers or, you know, we're not blessed with huge teeth. We ran these animals down to exhaustion. That was our skill, you know. Yeah. That's our our, uh, our birthright is to be capable of doing that. I think that's why we feel, we generally speaking, I do believe this, we feel good when we're doing things that evolution has equipped us to do, you know, mm. that, that, that we're, mm. you know, I'm not saying everything. We should, you should use that as your, as your final judgment. There is no doubt one or two things. You know? It's why us non-runners <laughs> invented guns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they can go very well together. I've always found it interesting that the, is it called the biathlon, I think, in the Winter Olympics? Yeah. is shooting and skiing, isn't it? Yes. Which is an interesting combination if you were going to just pick two things. But, of course, I imagine it does measure a certain amount of, um, I mean, self-control to be able to, physical exertion prior to mastering a rifle is probably quite a significant challenge. I think that must go right back you know, that idea of actually being able to, as you say, put in a lot of physical effort and mm. go a great distance, have your mm. heart rate going at quite a, a high rate exactly, and then suddenly yeah. having to relax and, and yes. bring it yeah. right down and stay That's calm. That's right. And it's blood is surging in your ears. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say I do like, I mean, I, I constantly say I don't like running, but I do like running. I just wish I were fitter. Whenever I am fit... And it, it varies, you know. If I'm mm. unfit, running is a chore. But the moment you get any sort of fitness, running is fabulous. You're right. It is completely natural. I to agree us, with that. It? We actually have an exercise bike in the house now as well, which I, I sort of use quite frequently between runs to keep fit 
without getting that sort of plodding, thumping, jarring feeling that you get if you run and you're not fit. I agree with mm-hmm. you. Running when you're fit is great. Running when you're not fit feels like you're just trying to shake your skeleton loose. You know? Yes. <laughs> and so it's good to be able to get something that will get you fit before you start running. <laughs> like these people who drink before they go to the pub, possibly. But, uh, you know. I'm going to race you down the hill. And, okay. and, and, and when we get to the bottom, the first one there puts it straight into the time capsule. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> That's where I'd like the time capsule to be buried, I think, up in the lakes. That would be a suitable destination. Gorgeous. Okay, right, lovely. So that's, uh, that's two items we've had. Okay. So what's number three? We're going to take a short break here, primarily for some adverts. Wouldn't it be good if it was for Old Speckled Hen? We'll be back in a moment. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Anybody get beer? Do let me know. Okay, let's get back to Simon Evans and his third thing for the time capsule. Number three, I'm going to choose my single favourite live experience as a spectator. And that, without any doubt at all, was seeing Springsteen at Earl's Court in 1999. I'd been a huge Springsteen fan, and I remain one, um, since about 1979, something like that. I think I was probably about 14 when a friend first gave me a tape of Born to Run, and um, mm-hmm. and I was sold, and I used to, you know, uh, air guitar in front of the mirror and, and just march around my room bellowing out the lyrics, <laughs> and I knew every every... Oh, every second of that album backwards and then Darkness on the Edge of Town and then uh, Nebraska and the River. And then when I went to university, I went to university in 83 and in 1984, 
Born in the USA came out, which was the point at which he became sort of public property. He went from being not, he was big, but he was still quite a cultish sort of, there was an element Mm. which if you were a fan, it was a bit of a club. And then suddenly he was as big as Madonna and Prince, you know, that that the Middle Ages and a big stadium act. And of course, you attract a certain amount of ridicule then for being a Springsteen fan because people think you're fantasizing about owning a Cadillac and stuff, you know. You, no, it's not like that. There's more much more. There's much more depth. I've been there since the beginning. Yeah, I'll exactly. But then in eighty four he came over and he played Wembley Stadium gigs and um we went to see him. I saw him on July the fourth on Independence Day at Wembley Stadium in eighty four. And that was huge. That was like a massive uh that was probably the highlight of my summer and probably of my sort of university time. I used to go to Wembley Stadium gigs a lot they were great I remember in those days and um, there was a moment when the lights went uh, when the lights came up rather just I don't know if you remember like stadium gigs outdoor gigs you probably get it at Glastonbury to some extent as well there's always that perfect moment about halfway through the set usually of the big headliner when the evening sun finally descends you know and the glooming begins the twilight and the stage lights start to twinkle like the lights on a Christmas tree you know and you have that (laughs) wonderful tingly feeling that oh we're settling in now and at that moment he played My Hometown which is a lovely sort of ten a ballad recollecting uh, growing up in, uh, in what had become the Rust Belt, I guess. And um, I did wonder whether that would be my um, my time capsule moment because it didn't. It doesn't get much better than that, and I, I can remember that very very clearly. But then he sort of went through a slightly rough patch. Um, personally, he, he recorded, he, he got married and then divorced and he made an album called Tunnel of Love about that. But it was a wonderful album, but it wasn't really like a stadium-busting soundtrack. You know, it was a much more intimate, smaller sound. He made a couple of solo albums, acoustic albums, and it felt like maybe the big E Street band days were over, you know, the big yeah. the, the, the days of those kind of massive operatic sets. And then I was on the train to Oxford to do a gig at Oxford Jonglers in about, I guess, something like February or something, 1999, and I was just leafing through a copy of the Evening Standard I'd found on the seat in front of me, and there was this full-page ad, Springsteen, Earl's Court, um, <laughs> three dates only, you know, and the number that you ring, Springsteen and the E Street Band. He's got the band back together again. And I remember my every hair on my body leapt to attention I was like oh my god I have to get tickets and I I rang them and we were like going through Reading and I held on the phone all the way to Oxford got off the train at Oxford I was still holding I was still on hold and I walked all the way to the gig and I was in the dressing room and it was like five minutes before I was going to be called on stage to do my gig and I was still in a holding and then I got through I got through just with five minutes left and I bought tickets for two out for three nights and they were incredible gigs and it was just the most you know it was so moving it was such there's such heartfelt connection between Springsteen and his crowd there's nobody else comes close for me and uh and I remember very clearly the moment when it it just became perfect was the intro to a song called Jungle Land which is the final track on Born to Run and which he hadn't played when I'd seen him um, at Wembley with the with the E Street Band, I'd never seen that live, and it's a huge sort of iconic song. And he played it that night. Fantastic. Gone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that that I mean, I would go back. I would probably, you know, in, you don't want to go back and back. The thing with Springsteen is he's still fresh. He's still creating it. He's seventy years of age, and he is still making brand new memories. You know, I would not want to go back to that instead of being able to see him the next time he tours. But but yes. that would be a moment that. You just go, that's... And as a performer, as a stand-up, that's when you realise how good 
being in an audience can be. It's not a, a passive experience, you know. It's not. It's not just. You're not just the recipient of something. There's a. There's a bond. There's a. There's a, an alchemy that takes place. Yes. When it's done right, that is really like life affirming. You know, it's really important. And you don't get it many other places now. Nobody goes to church anymore. I guess some people get it at their football stadium, you know, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it feels to me like every time I've been to see football, I see a lot of disappointment on most people's faces. You know, I don't see them (laughs) in raptures. They seem either tired or bored or angry. Occasionally, you know, there's a goal goes in and there's a few moments of ecstasy, but I don't know. It doesn't work for me anyway. But, you know, yeah, a big gig, a big gig with somebody who's demonstrated their commitment to their fans and their art and their craft over a number of years. You know, it's you're there for the, the redemption and, and, and he delivers it. And that marvellous thing of saying we were there. Yeah. When you come across somebody else who is at the same gig. Yes. It is a shared experience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or, in fact, doesn't even need to have been that gig. You know, anyone who's seen Springsteen over the years will have felt that 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 sense, although occasionally there are singular moments that come out. But, yes, yeah, we are, absolutely, and we are. Uh, and, it, you know, it's been lovely over the last few years, of course, places like Twitter, where I spend far too much time, have become rife with division, you know, Brexit and Trump, of course, are usually, the, you know, pointed out as to blame for that. But I suspect they're, they're symptoms of, of deeper divisions and so on. And, and um, it's great to have something that you can you can occasionally make bridgeheads across, you know, that um, there are plenty of people on Twitter who I don't agree with politically and, you know, sociologically or economically or in all sorts of ways. But as soon as we kind of go, did you hear the news? Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, it's music is a it has the capacity still to to get across. And Springsteen's politics are probably to the left of mine as well, you know, and, and, and he's one of those people who absolutely makes me think twice about some of the views I might other otherwise sort of be complacent. Yes, about, it's not a harmful know. thing to happen, is it, to have someone make you think again? Absolutely. He's tremendously good at creating, at inhabiting, you know, potentially downtrodden people. His, I guess you might compare him to sort of John Steinbeck's, you know, Grapes of Wrath. He has those kind mm-hmm. of characters. He can teach you about the dignity of those people. He can persuade you that some people that you're inclined to treat as statistics actually have their own individual stories, you know. Mm-hmm. I did once do a parody of uh, Bruce Springsteen, so I, I apologise now. But it had a very, we had a very funny joke in it, which was basically him with the guitars going, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, beers, please. <laughs> it wasn't a bad voice. That was pretty good. It was, a, it, was a good it was a good joke. But I would like to have seen you at Jongleurs in Oxford if you hadn't got through on the oh, phone. Can you that would have been a just gig to on see. stage with the phone. Just sorry guys, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll do the gig. It's fine. Just if I if I have to go, I have to go. At yeah. any moment I'm going to leave you. <laughs> That'd be a great gig. They, they oh, got dear. a great gig because I was in a really extraordinarily good mood having secured those tickets. I bet you. <laughs> Well, there we are, 1999. So that gig at Earl's Court goes straight into the time capsule. Yes. You can stand there and watch it any time. You're going to be digging this back up. I know that much. (laughs) Okay, we've got two left, Simon. We've got um, something that you love and something that you'd be glad to get rid of. I'll do the four good ones in in order at first and then then the epilogue. (laughs) 
<laughs> so my fourth one, um, I'm going to choose my wedding day, uh, which, you know, for contractual obligation purposes, would be, would be wise to do anyway. But one particular moment, which perhaps is, reveals my vanity a little bit, I have to be honest about it, but um, uh, it does stay with me. I had, um, I married in uh, 2003, and my wife obviously, you know, um, had met me uh, after, I would say obviously, but anyway, she had met me, I was already a stand-up comedian, and that was pretty much my life. Actually, she'd already been going out previously, there'd been a gap, but with another stand-up comedian, that's how we met, so she was sort of familiar with the industry and the implications, and there were quite a lot of stand-ups who came to the wedding, and my best man, Ross, who's my best friend and has been since I was about 12, you know, knew that he'd be performing in front of stand-ups. And I suppose her, her, her father knew as well when he was giving his speech. And so they both wanted yes. to be funny and sort of rise to that occasion, you know, but felt a certain amount of pressure. They both were really, really funny. Ross was excellent. He really nailed it. And uh, he got some really big belly laughs with his mm. sort of detailed analysis and observation of what I've been like as a, as a young man and older. But I felt, you know, to follow that, I thought I won't be funny. I will go for a more heartfelt and touching angle. And I don't think to this day I've ever really done that again before or since, you know, stood up in front of a group of people and and really opened up, you know, kind of shown a certain amount of vulnerability. Mm. And... uh, it was it was a really wonderful feeling, you know. It was an amazing feeling to to just kind of testify, I suppose, to the, you know, the power of family and love and commitment and the happiness that I felt to see all my friends in front of me. You know, I've always resorted to a certain arch distance, a certain cynicism and sarcasm in order to, you know, get the laughs and to keep everyone mm-hmm. comfortable that we're not going to go anywhere a bit, you know, <laughs> icky and, and sort of therapy or anything. But on this occasion, I, I was, uh, yeah, just a little bit more open and um, and I I drew on a, a poem that we started at A-level, which was a T.S. Eliot poem called, four, well, four poems called The Four Quartets, and there was a moment in the first one of those called Burnt Norton where he describes the sense of all time being ever-present in a certain place or in perhaps in the world generally. It's quite a sort of mystical, religious sort of theme that he pursues through that poem. All time is eternally present. And he talks about being in the garden. You imagine it of being... A st- I've never been to the place. It's called Burnt Norton, a sort of stately home, essentially, with a uh, an abandoned swimming pool. And then he says the, 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 the sun comes out briefly from behind the clouds and the swimming pool is filled with water out of sunlight and you can hear the laughter of children in the bushes and then <laughs> clouds pass again and it goes... And I said, this garden that we were in, we were in my father-in-law's garden, and um, I said, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, today's uh, gathering will sort of echo down the years like that, that people will have a sense of that having happened here. Mm. And uh, it was quite a high-risk, you know, thing to say, because I think it was a bit pretentious, potentially, but um, but it, it worked. Everyone connected with it. and uh, Fantastic. Yeah. It's a difficult thing, isn't it, to, to make that choice, particularly if your skill you know is making people laugh. Mm. Then you think, well, in fact, that would be the easier choice mm. for you. It would, to yeah. To say, OK, well, I'll just do some good gags about people. Yes. You know, but actually, to go that other way, I did almost the opposite at my daughter's wedding, is that I, I sort of bottled out of it. <laughs> I, I didn't have the confidence in myself to go serious. I thought, if I do, I'm going to become a blubbering idiot. Yes. Well, that is the other risk, actually crying, yes, which I am mm. susceptible to, you know, certainly. <laughs> I take great, great courage from the fact that apparently Churchill was like that too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, anybody who's not is lying to you, I yeah, think. Yeah. You know. Well, it's certainly not a bad thing. I, I love that about myself, to be honest, although occasionally it can be embarrassing. But it's a good feeling to feel emotion welling in your chest. And I don't, I yeah. think it, you know, you shouldn't trigger it with cheap tricks. I mean, you know, it should be safe for genuine feeling. But. Uh, not a bad sign, I don't think. Yeah, no, I think your own wedding, that's yes. fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, well done for doing it and well Thank done you. for getting through it, I think. Perhaps that would be another place to, to bury the time capsule in the back garden. How oh, lovely, in that yeah. garden. Yeah. And let the, let the Which, sunlight... Which they you have know. moved on from there now and it would be interesting to know whether the new residents... Keep <laughs> 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 that bloody noise then. Oh, there's no one there. <laughs> <laughs> or, in fact, if they have an empty pool. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that would be lovely. That's a beautiful image, isn't it, that idea of this yeah, it's a, derelict, empty pool yeah. filling with the water of sunlight. It's an incredibly powerful poem. Uh, the whole four quartets, which is a sort of... It's about the size of a short story, I suppose, four, four poems dwelling on eternity and, and sort of Christian mysticism, I suppose. Very, very different mm. to his early stuff. You know, The Wasteland, which I can't be honestly say I've ever drawn much nourishment from The Wasteland. It's <laughs> no doubt a great technical innovation. But um, but Four Quartets is probably, uh, would be one of the front runners for a Desert Island book for me. Really? Yeah, yeah. And funnily enough, our English teacher did say to us, this: you may be too young to fully understand it, but this book will stay with you throughout life. Mm. And uh, and it has done, yeah. Yes, I think they they showed us the joy of sex. <laughs> <laughs> I had a copy of that. Uh, it's about twenty years ago. Maybe I think I just started a stand up. But I was trying to sort of widen my uh, my range of media potential. I, I got myself a job as a book reviewer on GLR. You know GLR. The, it was yeah. now probably BBC London. Um, in Marylebone, mm-hmm. Great Marylebone High Street, something like that. And um, I think it was with Gideon Coe, who's a really great broadcaster. Anyway, I used to go in and do these book reviews, but instead of just doing what was out that week, I would select sort of classics and go in and talk about them and revisit them. And I did The Joy of Sex. And uh, <laughs> I had a big hardback copy with a sort of baking paper fly, sh- you know, I they got the dust sheet was sort of made of this kind of white clay material, which seemed really <laughs> tactless. But my God, the illustrations in that, the bearded man and the... Uh, Absolutely. You know, very much Once he never time. forgotten. No, that's no, right. I know. There's just too much hair involved in that it whole thing. It really was, yes. <laughs> in all senses of the word. There we are. OK, well, I'm going to put that lovely speech in that garden. Thank you. In- into the time capsule for you. And I, I can't imagine you'll ever forget it. So, no, I don't uh, think so. That's for future generations to look at, I think, and enjoy Lovely. So we've got one thing that you want to get rid of, Simon. Yes, this is, as I said to you, I don't know if we were recording them, but when we first sort of the preamble, I said it's difficult to get rid of things and, and think you will never remember them again, never have to confront them, because there is a danger in that. You know, you, you might forget the lessons you learned, you know, and the, the, the bad experiences do have that benevolent side effect that you, you are disinclined to go there a second time. But I did pick out one that I could definitely do without the cold shudder of shame that I get every time I remember it. <laughs> when I was about, I think, 13 or 14, I got I, I got involved with, how can I put it, I got involved with even now, I feel like I'm, I'm doing the same cowardly thing that I did la- that, 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 that actually is causing the shame shudder. But there were, there were two or three uh, of us and we got into shoplifting. We would go mm-hmm. uh, into uh, St Peter Street on... Uh, Saturday afternoon in St Albans where I lived and we would go into Boots 
or Woolworths or other sort of large chain stores and we would pinch things. And it was 90%, if not 100%, for the adrenaline rush. They, they were very rarely things that were of any sort of real material value to us or things that we couldn't, you know, have, have got. It was basically about, you know, uh, showing your little, you know, your haul off. And, mm. <laughs> and would you get the kudos of having got something quite large, you know, or whatever, or was it just a couple of... I think pick and mix were regarded by Woolworths as being almost a lost leader. You know, you were sort of expected <laughs> to filter a couple of those on the way out. But if you managed to get, as I did, for instance, a bottle of sherry on one occasion, which I was too Good young Lord. to have bought as well, you know, yeah. that was that was quite impressive. And we did it for about three weeks. And then my mother um, said that she knew I'd be um, buying Christmas presents for the family and so on soon. And she knew that I might struggle to buy presents for everyone on my limited pocket money. So she gave me a little bit of extra money to buy Christmas presents with. And, of Mm. course, I wasn't buying Christmas presents. I was stealing Christmas presents. And when I think about the sort of shame of that, so I had that money, you know, which I kept... I then, because I was ashamed that I now had about, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 pounds, you know, five a week over three weeks or something that I hadn't (laughs) spent any of. I was, she'll find it. If I keep it in my jeans pocket or whatever, she'll find it. I got a secondhand book. I can't remember what it was. It was a big hardback book, probably sort of like 1930s kind of, uh, you know, uh, that almost like when newspaper goes old and yellow and crispy, you know, and it was really quite almost on the verge of crumbling. And I did that classic thing where you you open it up and then you carve a section out in the middle of the book, you know. So with my penknife, I actually hacked out several pages so that I could stow my money in there. And then I had these squares of book pages, so I had to get rid of those, and they looked suspicious in themselves. And why I didn't just put them in the bin or whatever, but I was convinced I would be caught. I stuffed them into this sort of vent that was in our bathroom that just allowed fresh air into the bathroom, but it had a sort of, it was like a little chimney almost that came out of Mm -hmm. the side of the the internal wall. And I stuffed them into that. And then obviously some sort of atmospheric pressure sucked them out the other side and they were all (laughs) over the patio in the back garden. (laughs) Like this terrible, it was like some Edgar Allan Poe thing, you know, like the beating heart. Anyway, sooner or later, (laughs) eventually, thank goodness we were caught and uh, the old, hand came down on the shoulder on, on you know, mm. as exiting Woolworths one day and led up to the dismal little room up the stairs, up the back stairs and wait for the this shop man to arrive and then the, the shame, you know, and then this this just kind of absolute terror that your whole life is over, that, you know, that you've mm. committed a, an irrevocable crime that you were going to be paying for internally and uh and we were we were police came along and took us to the station and they rang my dad and my dad had to come and collect me from the station and they said it would be a caution but you know it was taken quite seriously anyway yes i mean i just felt terrible terrible shame but probably the worst shame i felt was when they asked us how we had why we were doing it or what what had got into us you know we were nice middle class boys you know why Mm. were we doing this and I still shudder, but I named a third party who we knew at school who had told me that nicking stuff from Woolworths was was really easy, and I gave his real wow. name. It was a terrible, terrible thing to do. That is, that's that was the pinnacle of my shame. I learnt something deeply unpleasant about me. That's that's the real shame. The rest of it, we've all done. Yeah, we've all been there, Simon. But to name this individual who had been, you know, the one who bragged about how easy it was, but you know, he wasn't mm. there. He wasn't under suspicion. 
And I remember even my two mates, you know, were like slightly aghast that I would do that. So Just looking at you, what yes, have you done? Exactly. Why terrible, terrible. So I have to. <laughs> I would discard that with glee, and yet still, yes. I probably do need to know that about myself. That if I'm not careful, there is that. <laughs> there is that terrible dysfunctional, you know, that, that inclination to, to sort of try and palm off blame and guilt onto somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> don't hurt me, don't yes. hurt me. Hurt them. Hurt them, him, over there. <laughs> terrible, Oh, terrible. Lord. Oh, no, down that path. I found a... Um, I read War and Peace recently after years of meaning to... Um, actually, I say I read it. I listened to it as an audio book, which I've discovered is a way that I can get through longer books much more easily. <laughs> and um, there's a character in that called Nikolai Rostov, who's one of the sort of major uh, young men who goes off to war against Napoleon, mm. and in his first engagement discovers, to his horror, that he is in fact something of a coward. <laughs> and uh, it's a lovely moment because until then he has been really quite full of himself, almost to the point where even though you can tell he's supposed to be one of the main characters, you're not inclined to like the chap very much. And then suddenly no. this vulnerability is, you know, and then he's thrown from his horse and when he wakes up, everyone's gone, you know, and he's just lying yeah. there in, in the mud, you know, staring up at the sky and there's silence all around him. <laughs> and I thought, I know, I've been there, mate. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my word. Yeah. So... Your mother found the papers as well, and the money she, she found didn't that understand uh, what the papers were when she found them. That the squares from the book, they never mm. understood that. But she did come up. Thank a few God, she days. never read Jane Austen. No, I know. Whatever it was, yeah. <laughs> one day I will find that book. And the money's still in it. Yes, I bet. Bet it has. God. She came up to my room a few days later. I do remember this. Initially, she was like slightly in shock and ashamed, and then you know that I'd been caught at all. And then you know mm. the wheels turned in her head, and she came up and she said, "Is this what you've been doing?" You know, and uh, taking yes. the money. And I can't remember to be honest what I said. I think the shame. I think my cheeks were burning so hot at that point that I couldn't even mm. think straight. But I do remember that I. With typical, and this is more acceptable, typical teenage behaviour, I was convinced that as a result I wasn't going to get my skateboard for Christmas. <laughs> this oh, would be no. a punishment. Damn. And then I used to go, as everyone does, and like sneak peeks into their wardrobe to see what was being filled up with. <laughs> and when I saw that a skateboard had actually arrived... <laughs> Uh, I think they made parents. a good choice there. Yes, absolutely. Otherwise, a division could have created. <laughs> Knowing your nature now, Simon, I think almost without doubt you said to your mother, you see, Mother, I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for your behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. your fault, Mummy. It's all your fault. You've obviously set me a bad example somewhere. <laughs> oh, my God, she's the most saintly oh. woman. She had, I'll tell you how saintly my mother is. I, I bought her, if that's not the wrong way to describe it, uh, uh, a package from a, com a company called Plan International by, through whom you sponsor children in developing countries and so on. You know, mm. it's a way of paying for education and sort of new sewage systems and so on. But it, instead of like that being abstract, you get a, a photograph of a child that you're supposedly mm. supporting. I always think it'd be quite funny if you did actually support them because they would become the wealthiest child in the village almost overnight. You know, if you're <laughs> 150 quid a year, went straight to them, they'd be like... <laughs> driving around in a limo but um, <laughs> but yeah so she and I got her one of those and she was really really touched and then every sort of two or three years um they renew because the child grows up and goes off to school or whatever and they they find mm. that I think you're more committed when you're looking at the face of a beaming toddler you know than some sort of uh <laughs> yes. truculent adolescent 
And um, and so she said to me, can you renew it? Um, but could you, would you mind um, finding one from a, a, a colder country, maybe Nepal, something like that? And I said, okay, yes. Why, why would, you, why any particular reason? And it turned out that she wanted to be able to knit for them, but there was so uh, little requirement for knit, for knitted garments uh, in the dress. Uh, <laughs> she felt thwarted by being unable to send her love in knitted form. So that's, uh, that's basically all you need to know about her. <laughs> that tells me everything I need to know about your mother. Yeah. Indeed. Oh, but Simon, absolutely fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bury the shame of that <laughs> for you. If only it was so simple. But the lesson will remain, I think. I hope so, yeah. yeah. It's been really lovely to talk to you about the things you want to put into the time capsule. It's been great fun. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to be invited. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Simon Evans. Thanks for listening. Uh, Before we go, I just have to tell you some technical information about this podcast, so if you want to skip this bit, feel free to hit the next episode button or the Move Me On 30 seconds against him when he was the mayor of London. You should have seen Boris's face when that was revealed to the whole congregation. That's where he buried the body, apparently. (laughs) Extraordinary, isn't it? I don't know what made me tell you that when I was supposed to be going on about Twitter and subscribing and Pastor P's music and John Fenton Stevens being the producer, but you can find all that at the end of most episodes, so I just thought I'd ring the changes. (laughs) I wonder when they'll actually arrest Boris. Oh, well, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.